The flight deck is made possible by the generous donors supporting the Museum of Flight. You can support this podcast and the Museum of Flight's other initiatives across the United States and the world by visiting museumofflight.org slash podcast. Hello and welcome to The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. I am your host, Sean Mobley. Today, Museum of Flight docent Jerry Coy returns to the show to share a story of one of his compatriots, Colonel, then Captain, Roger Locker. Coy and Locker, both Air Force officers and Vietnam veterans, flew together in the 43rd Squadron of the United States Air Force where Locker told Coy the story which Jerry will share today. In Vietnam, Locker flew for Oyster Flight as part of the massive Operation Linebacker, a sustained bombing effort that was designed to overwhelm the communist forces headquartered in northern Vietnam to the point that they agreed to meet and negotiate a peace. At the time, Locker was not a pilot but a weapons system officer, responsible for making sure that the bombs were dropped when they were supposed to, only over the correct military targets. On May 10, 1972, the second day of the six-month campaign, which also turned out to be the heaviest day of air-to-air combat in the entire war, Locker's F-4D Phantom was hit by a Vietnamese MiG-21. Locker's pilot, Major Robert Lodge, was killed in the crash, but Locker managed to eject safely. As Jerry begins the story, Locker is alone on a jungle-covered mountain, much farther north into the territory of the People's Army of Vietnam than any airman had been rescued before. His only goal now is to survive. As a result of all the smoke and the action that's going on with the other aircraft, no one observed Roger bailing out of Oyster 1. On the way down, he's able to get his bearings on exactly where he is in terms of Yen Bai Air Base. And uh, underneath him, he sees a, a hill. Now, the airplane crashes before he hits the ground, of course. He's able to steer to the west side of what amounted to about an 800-foot uh, hill or mountain, if you want to call it that. And the airplane goes down on the east side of that. So Roger's basically separated by this high terrain from the crash site. As he lands in the jungle, his uh, parachute gets uh, caught in the trees. He said he doesn't have to use his tree lowering device. He's only a couple of feet above the ground, but he disconnects from his harness and drops down a few feet uh, to the ground. And he said that uh, he thought about taking his radio out of his survival vest on the way down. They're hard. They were zipped in. He was worried about losing the radio on the way down. So he decided not to try to reestablish communication until he was on the ground. Now, not long after hitting the ground, he's gathering up what he can. He's unable to retrieve his parachute because it's stuck in the trees. And he takes a few items from his what they call the kit in the seat of the uh, of the ejection seat, two pints of water that he had uh, stashed into his G-suit uh, pockets. Very common practice to take frozen plastic bottles of water with you, and they would thaw uh, during the mission so you would have something cold to drink during the mission because the missions were frequently three and a half to four hours long. Okay, he's on the ground thinking about what to do next. 
with him, he has a survival vest, contents are a radio, strobe light, a mirror, pen light, a medical kit, a medical kit, just some band-aids and iodine, survival knife, pistol, which you can either carry in your vest or on your waist. Uh, Roger said he, he carried it in the vest and personal choices. Uh, personal choices in my case uh, were candy bars, but some of the guys just carried more water there. Roger stays off the radio for three days because the first two days he can hear people on the other side of this hill yelling uh, back and forth to each other in Vietnamese, and he assumes that they know that he has bailed out and are looking for him near the airplane, which again, was he was separated from the aircraft by this high terrain. In the first few days, he's able to find some uh, small pieces of fruit and berries, so he's feeling pretty good about himself right now. And on the fourth day, he hears an attack, some bombing going on, but it's very far away. He turns his radio on and tries to uh, reestablish contact. He thinks he's so far away, either that or the fact that the jungle is so thick, he's not able to communicate. Turns his radio off again and uh, rethinks his plan. The next seven days, the members uh, of his flight all try to reestablish contact looking for Oyster One or Oyster One Bravo. They didn't know if either, both the guys got out or either of the guys got out at that time. Now, they were so deep into North Vietnam that uh, Roger knew that there would not be a search and rescue attempt because uh, basically nobody ever went that far in. Helicopters would have just been decimated if they had tried to get that far into that hostile territory. So he decided that uh, he should he would try to make it to one of the pre-planned safe areas, which were way west of where he was located. And he only traveled pre-dawn and at suns uh, just before sunset, trying to avoid contact with people. Get that one on the bottom. He estimated it would take him 45 days to get to the safe area. Wow, what an optimist. And the way safe areas were established, they were areas that there was no habitation. You were supposed to get to the safe area and uh, lay out a flag or something that would notify airplanes that, that flew over each day checking the safe area. At the time that I was there, the signal was a kilo. So you'd make a K with limbs or whatever you could put together to try to let somebody know you were in the safe area. Okay, so Roger is trekking now. He's able to find water quite readily. Uh, there are numerous streams that he crossed. He is getting quite hungry, as you might imagine by this time. And he came upon a taro field. Taro is a sustainable crop and uh, is used to make poi, which uh, most of you that have ever been to Hawaii have eaten at one time or another. Roger, being a farm boy, recognized uh, that this was edible and uh, it's grown very much like a carrot. So he imagines he'll pull one or two out of the ground, wash it off a bit, and then have a dinner, so to speak. However, taro is one of those uh, crops that has to be cooked before it can be eaten. Uh, Roger takes uh, two big bites, and he says it was so delicious. He said uh, he felt like he was going to make it. And he said, however, before he could have the third bite, his tongue and throat started to swell closed because of the rough crystalline structure of the root. And he said he actually had to take his finger and hold his, his uh, tongue down to be able to breathe. He said it scared him pretty violently, and he said it took a full hour before he started to be able to breathe normally again. 
and he decided maybe I'll wait a couple more days before I try to eat anything else out of the wild like that. Okay, so uh, off he goes. He's trekking the entire time, although he's only moving about an hour to an hour and a half, maybe three hours total a day. He's on a trail. I asked him, well, didn't you think it was dangerous to be following trails? He said, yeah, but that was so much faster than trying to navigate the jungle. I decided that I needed to do that to be able to make up lost time. He hears some uh, distinctive uh, Vietnamese voices down in front of him. He said he thought of maybe 60 or 70 meters away. And he said he can't see them, but he knows they're headed his way. So he jumps behind a fallen log and tries to, to drag some weeds and grass and leaves over him. And he's laying beside the log. He said as the two voices get closer and closer, they decide they're going to stop and sit down on the log that Roger is uh, laying next to. He said they were so close, he actually monitored his breathing. He thought they might be able to hear him breathing. And he said they they actually have a meal, visit for about 15 or 20 minutes, and then they move on down the trail. Roger laid there for another hour before moving off into the jungle again and stayed there for that day as well as the next. Day 13, he's getting pretty desperate for food. There's a village in front of him that he has seen. And he decides that he should try to get in there and try to find something to eat. Now, he heard the the gong, which all of the villages uh, received every morning about 6.30 a.m. that would be go to work time. And everyone, toddlers, adults and uh, infants would go into the fields to work the fields so that basically the villages were vacated. Now, he said that there was a, a hooch, uh, which was our term for the huts. Uh, he said he went in right away and he found that they had uh, left a little piece of pork, a bit of rice, and uh, he said he found a nice piece of fruit and he gobbled it all down right there. He said, I said, you didn't just take it and run away. He said, no, it was, it was so tempting. He said, furthermore, there was so little rice and pork that it only took a couple of seconds to finish that up. So he did get, did get some sustenance on day 13. Day 14, he's only made it seven miles, and he's aware of what his position is at this time, thinking, oh, my God, I don't think, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. He's in the jungle now, still very hungry, as you might imagine, and he comes upon a monitor lizard, and he said the size of the lizard, was, he said he thought it was six and a half to seven feet long, including the tail. He said it was a fairly good sized animal and he's thinking food. He pulls out his survival knife and moves closer to the lizard and he says that the lizard opens his mouth and hisses very loudly at him. And he said he could actually see some sputum uh, dripping from his mouth and he was thinking about, uh, you know, if I get bitten by that thing, uh, that might be the end of me due to infection. So I think Roger was probably smart about the fact that he had decided the, to move away from the lizard and look for something that might be easier to eat. Days 19 and 20, he actually, at the end, excuse me, the morning of day 20, he unknowingly runs into a village. And this is just prior to 6 a.m. in the morning. And he said that he's, he's literally next to a, one of the huts before he realizes he's in there. So he runs back out just about 40 meters away and uh, jumps off the trail he was following and covers himself, he said, as quickly as he could. 
with uh, weeds and grass. And he said that he's laying there and it's, he said maybe 45 minutes, an hour later, he said the people have come by going out to the fields. And he said he can hear two kids coming down the trail and he knows their, their children due to the sound of their voices. Unbeknownst to him, he said they are leading a water buffalo out to the field. Now, the water buffaloes were used uh, to pull the plows for the field work. And he said that he's just off the trail, and the water buffalo apparently is walking off the trail as well. He's being led by the kids. And he said the water buffalo gets to him and senses his presence and won't move. And he said the kids are yelling at the water buffalo and obviously trying to, you know, pull him forward. And he said, this goes on for 30 or 40 seconds and the water buffalo finally relents and steps across him. He said, but when his rear leg passed across Roger, it knocked all his cover off of his leg. And he said, his, his right leg was completely exposed. And he said, however, the kids are so occupied with getting the water buffalo down the trail that they failed to notice him. He said, you know, my heart was racing. At that time, I was ready to just say, I give. He was ready to give up and be taken prisoner. He's three weeks into the trek now. As you might imagine, uh, with the limited amount of food he's able to have, he's getting very weak. He said he finally realized that uh, he wasn't going to make it. Uh, he said to me, he said, you know, uh, that distinctive sound that an F4 engine makes when they have the throttles back and you're descending, how it kind of whines? I said, yeah. He said, well, I heard that. And I heard it and it wasn't very far away. He said, even though there was an overcast, I recognized there had to be F4s near me. So he turns on his radio and he transmits the emergency beeper, the beep, beep, beep sound for 30 seconds, which was procedure, and then changed over to the voice mode and says, any aircraft reading Oyster 1 Bravo come up on guard. Guess who's airborne uh, and very nearby? Steve Ritchie, who was number three in the original flight. He recognized the call, call sign and responded, Oyster One Bravo, I hear you, go ahead. Roger's response is, hey guys, I've been down here a long time, any chance of picking me up? To which Steve Ritchie replies, you bet. We'll get it underway as soon as possible. Three weeks and a day. Okay, so they launch a, a search and rescue attempt the very next morning. However, they meet so much resistance, they have to pull out. Not only were they receiving surface-to-air fire, as well as a couple of SAMs were shot at them, they actually had MiGs make two passes on them. The way they were able to evade was to get into a canyon and fly at a treetop level. They were able to get back to base, though. They were afraid, of course, that the Vietnamese forces had been alerted by this, that there had to be a downed airman uh, somewhere very near where they were. Day 23, three weeks and two days after the saga started, the commander uh, uh, down in Saigon, General John Vogt, following the policy of no troops left behind, decides uh, that uh, the next day that, would, that all assets that were committed to bombing, no matter where they were, would be diverted to rescuing the downed crew member in North Vietnam. This amounted to 119 aircraft. Part of the procedure of doing a search and rescue is to verify that uh, the downed crewman is somebody that, that is actually a downed air crewman and is a friendly as opposed to being a Vietnamese ruse. Now, 
Whenever we entered uh, the combat area, every pilot and navigator filled out uh, an escape and evasion document that had a area for five uh, personal questions that only you would know. Roger had filled that out and he expected to be called, uh, to be asked one of those questions. And he said the whole night he was trying to remember what he had put on his E&E document so that he could answer correctly. And he was worried that he may not be able to remember all of those. What if they asked me something I can't remember? His fears were the same as the A1 guys, and uh, they were concerned that the length of time that Roger had been on the ground, that he may have been compromised in terms of his escape and evasion document. So there was a guy at Nacom Phnom where the A1s flew from that was a K-State graduate. And so he, the lead uh, A1 pilot went to this guy and said, uh, hey, uh, I want to be able to ask Roger Locker something that only he would know. And so the, his fellow K-State grad said that, yeah, I know uh, what he would know. Ask him, what are kites? And the Sandy guy says, well, what should the answer be? He said, that's a, that's a bar that all, everyone went to from K-State. So Sandy shows up and his first question to Roger Oyster One Bravo, what are kites? Roger said he was shocked that this guy was asking him about this bar just off the base. He said, well, that's a place to drink beer. Sandy's response is, you're our man. We're on the way. So he clears the Jolly Greens in hot. That means go pick up Roger Locker. Now, Roger used his signal mirror to guide the helicopters in. They spot the signal mirror and drop their tree penetration device one of which we have in the Vietnam uh, era gallery. It goes down through the trees. Uh, Roger lets it hit the ground, unfolds the seat, puts the protecting lariat around his back and uh, sits on the seat and uh, up he goes. So after 407 and a half combat missions, Roger Locker's on his way home. Thank you for tuning into this episode of The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. Thanks to those who are able to support the museum and the podcast financially right now. You are literally the ones keeping this thing going while we remain closed due to the COVID-19 epidemic. There's a link in this episode's show notes if anyone else would like to add their own support. On your next visit to the Museum of Flight, make sure you venture into our great gallery to not only see the F-4 Phantom like the one Locker was flying in on display in our Vietnam era gallery, but also a tree penetration device like the one Locker rode to safety, which is a pretty unique artifact on display. Jerry tells this story regularly as part of the Museum of Flight's daily storytelling program. So the next time you visit, make sure you check our website to see what's on deck the day of your arrival. Of course, as of this episode's recording, the museum is still closed in response to the coronavirus. Check the museum's website, museumofflight.org, for the most up-to-date information on reopening. And in the meantime, you can see some of our Vietnam War-era artifacts in our digital collection from the safety of your home. And I have links to that in this episode's show notes. This episode is part one of a two-part collection I'm calling A Tale of Two Aviators. This episode and the next one, released on the podcast feed, will both tell the stories of U.S. American aviators in the Vietnam War who were shot down 
over the course of their service, and both have very different stories of what happened after they hit the ground. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you get the next episode to hear part two of this collection. If you like what you heard, please rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you downloaded us from. Shout out to listener D. Emil, who left just such a kind five-star review on Apple Podcasts a little while ago. Trust me when I say that sort of thing. It really sustains me uh, through this right now. You can contact the show at podcast at museumofflight.org. And until next time, this is your host, Sean Mobley, saying to everyone out there on that good earth, we'll see you out there, folks. <laughs>